Good to see you here this morning. Nice summer day. Well, if you see in your bulletin who is preaching today, <clears throat> that's kind of a, a misprint. Elaine's not preaching. She's going to be bringing a reading. And uh, the reason she is doing that is because <clears throat> we have guest speakers lined up for the rest of June. This Sunday was completely open, and Pastor Sandy said that he would be willing to bring pulpit supply after, well, at the beginning of June and on through until we called someone to work with him. And I called him, and they're going to Ohio for a family get-together. There's people graduating and so forth, so they're not available. So they are traveling. Uh, I, they're probably out there by now, but we should keep them in our prayers that they have a safe trip back by now and uh, a good time with their family. So let's keep that in mind. Uh, one, one change in the order of worship, we'll do our joys and concerns, and then right after that, I'm going to lead us in a responsive reading, and I'll tell you which one it is when we get to that point. It's just uh, not real long. We'll do that after the joys and concerns and before the opening hymn. So, I don't think we have any other uh, announcements we have to make. Joe, you don't have anything? You're a male? Okay. All right. We, we are going to be uh, allowing people to use the pavilion this summer but not the sanctuary and the, the kitchen and so forth. The, now, the Volleyball League has been using the, the gymnasium throughout this time, but other than that, uh, only the pavilion will be available for outsiders to use. So just so you know, if you go by and you see somebody over there, that's okay. All right. Joys and concerns. We, of course, have a lot on our prayer ministry guide, and... Uh, we always look to Christine to see if there's any updates that might not have gotten printed. Is, that, is there anything that you need to share, Christine? Okay, let me get my mask on here. I know things are loosening up as far as these masks go, but we're going to continue with this for a while until probably the rest of the month of June, and then we may, uh, depending on the situation, may relax a little bit more with our COVID precautions, but until then, we'll continue to do what we've been doing. Uh, yes, uh, I had on our prayer chain for our granddaughter, Lauren Meyerhuffer. She had a, had a gallbladder operation this week on um, Wednesday, and she is at home now, and the operation went well. How old is she? How old is she? Yeah. Uh, Here we go, Ted. 30. Oh, she's in her 30s? Yeah, early 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she's not 30. a teenager. Uh, she's like 30 or 31, something okay. like that. Yeah. I'd have to look at my... That's <laughs> I can't okay. remember That's all, all right. of them. That's all right. But she's doing well, and uh, she's had trouble with this gallbladder for quite some time. This is her third attack. She was taken oh. to the hospital Tuesday morning to emergency. Okay. And then was in all day, and finally then Wednesday they did operate. So thank goodness that's all over, and it's an update of our prayer chain that I had on, it's not on the prayer guide because it was all happening, okay. and I had it on the prayer chain. Okay. So that, and other updates have been made, and I have a new one here, uh, 
Barb Adams. She had been on our prayer guide before. She wasn't right now, but we will put her on. She's seeing the doctor June the 10th, and she will be scheduled for surgery June 23rd, open heart surgery to, to replace two valves. So she had been having problems, and they couldn't decide what they're going to do. Now they finally have made the decisions, which is good, that they know what they're working with and what to do right. for her. But she needs our prayers, definitely. And I saw up here under Jenna Ferguson, she, I think they, she spelled the wrong. It should be T-H-Y and O-M-8. It's a thyma tumor, and she has a P. And I think she just put the wrong letter. <laughs> Could because you know what? It's very... Um, uh, Earl Stricker has a thymus tumor and testing's being done. I have him on the prayer guide. Okay. And these two are very similar. Okay. What's happening. Okay. Uh, the, kind of the same type, you know, yeah. of thing. <laughs> this yeah. thynoma tumor and the, the thymus tumor. Yeah. You know, they're, they are related. Yeah. Not exactly the same, but it's just strange. They were both announced last Sunday that they have this, yeah. you know. But So we have these all on, and we just keep praying for everyone because I, I have taken some off. I knew my – Johnny asked me how my brother Jim is doing, Jim Burrier. Him and his wife both have cancer. He has four-stage oh. prostate, and she has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, third stage. And she's through can, uh, chemo right now. Jim is doing a medication chemo, but they're both in – like a remission type thing right now, okay. which is good. Yeah. And we just, I removed them. Not that I'm, that we all stopped praying, but, right. you know, I right. feel it's a break time, really. Right. And it's a good time. Yeah. So hopefully and prayerfully, things do work out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So other than that, that's it. I don't have anything else new. Everything's okay. been put on. Okay. All right. Does anybody have anything to share? Nancy. <laughs> I can wait count on Nancy. <laughs> Uh, talk to Jerry Miller on Sunday. He oh, sends good. his greetings to everyone. He misses us. His great-granddaughter just turned one year old. Oh, my. Uh, he said he hasn't gotten to see her in person yet, but they're opening up there at Masonic Village. He doesn't have to eat in his room. He can now eat out with other people. Oh, that's good. He said he's doing well, and he really he misses seeing people here. Yeah, but yeah. He has to send greetings. And I called Loretta Blatt, and she said that Earl gets up, he eats, and by the time he's done with breakfast, he's really tired. He'd love to come, but he just gets so tired. Yeah. Uh, she said his one lung's not working like it should. Okay. And he just tires out. But uh, they miss everybody, and they also send greetings to yeah. everybody. Yeah. We were just talking here during Sunday school how old Earl is. He's in his 90s. I didn't realize that Earl was that, that, that old. So keep him in your, our, our, your prayers. Who else? Harriet. Hold on. Our grandson, Rod, he's back in the hospital. He went back in last Sunday after the bulletin had said that he was doing well. But he went back last Sunday. And the doctors, his doctors contacted doctors, different doctors. And one from Boston, Massachusetts, suggested that he, they put him on Jacopee, a drug that this doctor said he tried it on one of his patients. And... Um, 
they were did a spinal tap and a bone marrow test, and they're thinking about doing a bone marrow transplant. And uh, his Farrington, I don't know what that is, but it was up to 44,000. Now it's down to 16,700. And I think it's supposed to be 100. Oh. And uh, he was on chemo, so they're taking him off of chemo, but he's still on steroids. And that gives him diabetes, so they're giving him insulin. Oh, wow. And he had a spinal tap. And um, they had a prayer vigil for him on Friday night outside the hospital. And uh, his spirits seemed good, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes. And uh, his son, he's 17, but he, he drives. And nobody knew that he was going to the hospital. And just sitting there in the lobby, because I guess he wasn't allowed in the hospital. Right, yeah. And his mother found out that that's what he was doing. And she went down and sat with me. So he's in good spirits, so that's a good thing. Yeah, good. A lot of different things going on there with that yeah. young man. Yeah, yeah definitely. He yeah, definitely needs prayers. Anyone else? Mel. If, if anyone needs in the pavilion, I have keys for the pavilion in my mailbox. Uh, as of now, I don't know of a pavilion schedule so okay. we'll have to get that together at some point here yeah. yeah i had talked to sue about that so i don't know if she has anything together or not you know she would put it on the wall in there yeah anyone else uh just a reminder for the search committee if we can meet just for a couple minutes after worship we have a decision to make on meeting Okay. Well, as promised, we will do a, a responsive reading right now. If you'll pull out your hymnals and turn to responsive reading number 672. It's on assurance. Number 672. I'll read the fine print if you'll respond with the, the bold print, please. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom we... And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, 
rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers... Let's stand and sing our opening hymn, ladies and gentlemen. It's number 585.
everybody. One day during my prayer time, I asked the Holy Spirit to show me how I could be of service to the Lord. And bam, out of nowhere, a song from 20, 30 years ago popped in my head. And the lyrics go like this. Let me see if I can get this right. <clears throat> well, you can sing about the great King David, and you can preach about the wisdom of Saul, but the judgment falls on all mankind when the trumpet sounds the call. Wait, stop. Holy Spirit, does this mean you want me to research King David? Really? I mean, it's the Old Testament, and I really don't want, and then another thought was pinged in my head that said, wait a minute, when is the last time you heard someone speak about King David? Hmm. Hey, this could work out. Okay, Holy Spirit, I'm in. I'm in. But you know what, folks? Sometimes it's all about obedience. So here's King David in a nutshell. Here I am. So let's get the basic information that we know about King David out of the way. Just a quick review. Who was King David? King David lived around 1000 B.C., he was from Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. He was the youngest out of seven brothers. He was a great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He wrote half the book of Psalms. He laid the groundwork for the construction of the temple, and he had had eight wives. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. He was also a shepherd, musician, poet, giant slayer, and warrior, and despite committing adultery with Bathsheba and arranging the murder of Uriah, David remained God's anointed one, Israel's greatest king, and a man after God's own heart. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a genuine overachiever. Now, this information alone could have been what the Holy Spirit wanted me to research for this reading, but no. That wasn't it. Exactly. The Holy Spirit led me to another place online, and I found a very different way of looking at David's life and how through time Jesus came to acknowledge David through his earthly ministry, which leads us to the title of this reading, King David, What's the Big Deal? From No Name Runt to Celebrated King. King David is one of the more well-known figures in the Bible, and for good reason. He is actually the most developed and complex character in the entire Old Testament. The amount of pages dedicated to his story, which would be 1 Samuel 16 through 1 Kings 2, outnumber any other single person in the Bible except for Jesus, who has four entire books in the New Testament. So this begs the question, why does David get so much attention? I mean, sure, he was an important king, but in the terms of an overall storyline in the Bible, why is David such a big deal? I believe 
there must have been something the biblical author of 1 Samuel and 1 Kings wanted to say about God's value system in order to generate hope for the future. So let's take a survey of David's story and see if we can come up with something. First, let's talk about this no-name runt. Yeah, you heard me. No-name runt, and we all know what a runt is. Unlike Saul, Israel's first king, David didn't have height or muscle going for him, at least compared to Saul's intimidating stature, which, by the way, made him very attractive as a royal candidate. God had revealed to Samuel that Israel's true king and Saul's replacement would come from the tribe of Judah and the family line from the tribe of Jesse. When Samuel showed up, he took a good look at seven of Jesse's sons, most of whom were tall and handsome, but God, God had been very clear. Outward appearance is never a reliable indicator of inward character. 1 Samuel 16.7 states, God does not see as humans see. Humans see what was outly visible, but God, God sees the heart. So Jesse fetches the poor forgotten son of the family who was out watching the sheep, young David. This, we discover, is Israel's true king. This story of David's humble origins came to epitomize the ideal king in that as ruler, he did not exalt himself over Israel by human expectations or standards. Rather, David was elevated by God's own grace and surprising creativity. And it all happened right under Saul's nose, which did not make him happy at all. So we come to the persecuted king. The contrast between Saul and David's character did not end with their origin stories. Most of the story of for Samuel goes on to tell of the great hostility that grew between them because of this very difference. David's first and greatest victory took place when he rejected Saul's tactics for armor and weaponry and went out into the battlefield with only his slingshot and faith in his God. He had won favor among the people until his fame overshadowed that of Saul. And Saul, well, Saul just couldn't handle no longer being the center of Israel's attention. This hatred, born from jealousy, eventually develops into an assassination plot, residing with David, having to spend a lot of time on the run, with a crazed Saul chasing him all around the desert. But even here, we get to see David's true character shine. He trusts in God through it all. Time and again, we see David play the role of the humble servant of God, who does not insert himself until God opens the opportunity. So right now I'd like to pause for a few moments and talk a little about Saul. When the people of Israel had asked for a king, Saul seemed like a perfect gift, fit rather. He was tall, he was handsome, and there was a certain mystique about him that appealed to the people. 
They also appreciated Saul's impressive size, good looks, and outstanding image, and Saul ranked high on all those areas. But here was the problem. Saul took himself seriously, he took his circumstances seriously, and he even took the people seriously, but he did not take God seriously. Sadly, Saul left his, left his growing ego get in the way of his devotion to God. And toward the end of his life, Saul careened out of control. And when his life had reached the lowest point and he lay wounded on the battlefield, he drew his sword and ended his own life, the culmination of a long process of self-destruction. This man, who was once mighty in battle and strong leadership, finally turned against everything he had been appointed to represent. Saul was a man who started well, but ended poorly. Without knowing it, this man spoke the words that could serve as his own epitaph. 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Now back to David. Now we're at the exalted servant part. David does not stay the underdog forever. We know that Saul eventually sinks into madness and ruin and dies while in battle with the Philistines, but even then, David is grieved by the death of his enemy. From here on, the narrative focuses on God's exaltation of David. His tribe wants him alone to be their king, and through no effort of his own, the house of Saul entirely collapses. Once again, David is thrust into a position of influence by doing nothing but waiting for God to work things out. This is the same David who ends up establishing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and prepares it for the construction of the temple. I think we can see why later generations of Israel look back on the portrait of David with such fondness. Israel never had another king quite like him. And it is to David that God makes this important covenant promise. God says, one day he will raise up from David's line a descendant that will build a temple and rule over an eternal kingdom. This king will be so closely aligned with God's will, he will be like God's son, and God will be this king's father. That's 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. Now, it is at this point that Christian readers of the Old Testament might be getting kind of excited. This is, refers to the coming of Jesus, right? But then we need to read the next part of the story, which may throw us just a little, because God goes on to say, I will be a father to this future king, and he will be a son to me. When he commits sin, I will correct him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Did we all catch that? When he commits sin? At first glance, these words seem to be referring to the coming of Jesus. But this just doesn't sound at all like Jesus. And we'd be right. It doesn't. That is because it is not a direct messianic prophecy in the sense of prediction and fulfillment. 
actually. This divine promise is setting us up to read all about the descendants of David's line who were going to fail miserably and never live up to the humble faith of their ancestor, King David. Even after the line of David completes a royal failure and runs the nation of Israel into the ground, this divine promise still stands. It is this enduring hope of a future king who will not be like David's descendants and will not be like David when he took advantage of Bathsheba. No, no, no. This then is the seedbed of the biblical prophet's vision of a future messianic king. And this is the hope that is expressed all over the Old Testament. One day, another king is going to come who will not repeat the failures of Saul. Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe this particular king as being David-like. These two old prophets had lived to see the descendants of David get hauled off into captivity and exile, just as God said it would happen. But you know what? When they looked into the future fulfillment of God's proud promise, they didn't look for a new Saul. They didn't even look for a new Solomon. Rather, they hoped for a new David, another humble king who would submit to God's will, a king with radical trust in God his father and who would allow his father to exalt him at just the right time, a servant king like David who would not shove his way into power. Israel's true king would be persecuted by his fellow Israelites just as King David had pers been persecuted years before. And that person, friends, is our Lord Jesus the Christ. Now, let's let the cat out of the bag. In order to do that, we need to move forward in time to Matthew. In a well-known story, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, picking and eating food as they went. According to the interpretation of the Torah held by the Pharisees, this was a work, a form of work on the Sabbath. So what did they do? They accused Jesus of unfaithfulness to Israel's God. And he responds in a very odd way. He asks those Pharisees, whose profession was to read and interpret the Torah, if they had ever actually read the Torah. Jesus is not kidding around here. Specifically, Jesus wants to know if they have ever considered the story about David when he entered an Israelite temple and took the sacred bread that was assigned for the guests, priests alone. Excuse me. Alluding to the story in 1 Samuel 21, Jesus also wants to know if they've ever thought about the fact that Israel's priests who offer excuse me, sacrifices also work on the Sabbath. Hmm. Then he follows up by saying, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what does a random story about David and the priests have to do with the conflict Jesus is having with the Pharisees. Let's think about it. Jesus picked a story from what period of David's life? 
1 Samuel 21 comes from precisely the period where David had already been anointed as Israel's true king. But at that time, no one else recognized that fact. And as for Israel's current leader, Saul, he was so preoccupied with persecuting David, he was totally ignorant of what God's real purpose to exalt this no-name runt from the tribe of Judah. By quoting this story from 1 Samuel 21, Jesus is putting himself in the place of David and the Pharisees in the place of Saul. Well, stay with me now. This allowed Jesus to place himself in the role of Israel's priests who had the unique authority to represent all of Israel before God and can therefore work on the Sabbath as needed. But wait, there's more. To top it all off, Jesus says that he is the true embodiment, the reality to which the temple has been pointing all along, which was and still is reunion of heaven and earth and of God and humanity. The stories about King David provide the template of Jesus' messianic vocation and they epitomize the upside-down value system of God's kingdom that Jesus was always talking about. It is a kingdom where the poor and persecuted are the most exalted and the powerless are God's chosen ones. When Jesus read the stories of David, it wasn't to learn interesting facts about Israel's history. Like the prophets before him, Jesus read the Torah as a prophetic history that was pointing towards the messianic kingdom of God. These stories about David were designed to foster that very hope in Jesus' day and in our own today. Excuse me, just a minute. I don't think I can speak about King David without including something about his prayer life. Someone once said, reverence is honor and respect that is deeply felt and outwardly demonstrated. It begins with a properly aligned heart and results in outward expression and praise. As we contemplate who God is, all he has done, and all he has promised, our hearts become more firmly centered on him. We begin to see him more clearly as he really is, the God who loves and pursues, the God who rescues and redeems, and the God who overturns and elevates kings. And King David excelled in this. His prayers, many of which are recorded in the book of Psalms, often followed a particular faith-building pattern. He would begin by honestly expressing his hurts and fears to God and asking for help. And then he would conclude with a praise-filled declaration of God's love, power, presence, and character. Again and again, prayer after prayer, David proclaimed God's goodness and reminded himself, even with all his faults, who he was in God. David was able to move forward with confidence, regardless of the challenges, uncertainties, and decisions he faced, because he knew all-powerful God would be with him and guide him. And he also knew that guidance would be blameless because God himself was blameless. Let's pray.
We pray, O oh Lord, that you help us catch a new vision of who you really are and what you can accomplish in and through our lives as we trust in you. Only you know what lies ahead. You are our good Father, just and righteous. And although our circumstances in life may sometimes seem to be unfair, you are always our unwavering protector and shield. Lord, help us keep the words of King David from Psalms 3, verse 5, fresh in our minds, and renew our hearts to the tune of your truth. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. On a personal note, Father, I thank and acknowledge you, the Holy Spirit, for leading and guiding me to the message today. I could not have done it without you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to close with Psalm 8, a Psalm of David, one of my favorites. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foes and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim in the sea. Indeed, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And isn't it astonishing that God, our Father, cares for us so much that he crowns us with glory and honor? Truly, it calls out for our response of loudest praise, which leads us to our hymns. We have two. Please turn in your hymnals to page 30.